We are in the 23-24 school year. We have begun, and one of our first episodes we're going to touch on the 23-24 school year is a highlight on our Sports Medicine Advisory Committee. As you may or may not remember, we've touched on the fact that we have advisory committees for all of our sports and activities. We have also some advisory committees who are not touching specific sports and activities, and the Sports Medicine Advisory Committee is really one of our most important committees. And so joining me today on the podcast, we have Greg Stahl, who is days away from his retirement. You may even be listening to this episode when Greg is you know, on a beach somewhere, I guess. <laughs> so Greg, Assistant hmm. Executive Director, who has been the MISHA staff member responsible for the Sports Medicine Advisory Committee for a number of years. Dr. Greg Canty, who is the Medical Director for the Sports Medicine Center at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Greg also helps a number of schools in the Kansas City area with probably the most touches on Raytown High School. Dr. Mark Halstead, who is Pediatric Sports Medicine at St. Louis Children's Hospital in St. Louis. He's also the team doctor for Francis Howe High School. And Stephanie West, the Director of Sports Medicine for Peak Sport and Spine in Columbia, a former high school athletic trainer, still doing a lot of athletic training work these days, uh, spent a lot of time at Hickman High School. So welcome to each of you. Thank you for having us. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's good. I'm going to start with Greg. Greg, can you just kind of summarize maybe the importance of the Sports Medicine Advisory Committee to what we do in the office as far as just the, the administration of our sports and activities? So I can't tell you exactly what year the state association put the Sports Medicine Advisory Committee in place. However, whenever that decision was made, what a great decision for the benefit of our member schools. Just safety and risk management alone for our student-athletes has picked up so much speed in the last 15 years especially. You know, maybe not starting with, but I I can recall during my tenure here in the office that concussions and the signs and symptoms and the diagnosis of concussions, etc., became such a red alert for us at the interscholastic sports level. And it's just gone on from there. I just think that our Sports Medicine Advisory Committee has helped our association recognize a great deal the importance of safety and risk management of kids, whether it's concussions, heat illness prevention, skin conditions, you know, primarily sports of wrestling, but others, sudden cardiac arrest. We can go on and on and on with how our Sports Medicine Advisory Committee that we often refer to as SMAC, and perhaps we will the rest of this podcast, but the benefit that they've given the state association has been huge. The medical professionals that are on our committee, we are extremely lucky to have them and their knowledge and their input on what's best for kids. As many listeners may or may not know, our state association consists of a lot of education professionals, teachers, coaches, administrators. But when you start talking about medical-related topics, that goes out of our wheelhouse pretty quick. And luckily, we have this SMAC team to be our minds and our open eyes in areas that we really need some guidance and leadership with. Use the term SMAC team, Sports Medicine Advisory (laughs) Committee. 
we shorten it for smack all the time. We're not talking about actually smacking anyone. But Sports Medicine Advisory Committee, you mentioned about the folks that are on that team, that committee. The folks we have today, we have two physicians and an athletic trainer and a leader among athletic trainers. But we've got a number of athletic trainers. We have a few other physicians. We just have a subset of the group today. We even have a school nurse on the committee. One of the other physicians is a mental health professional. So we're really trying to look at the whole child, the whole person, when we look at our student athletes. And Dr. Canty, I'm going to ask you this question, just from your perspective in the area of sports medicine, pediatric sports medicine, you come with a particular perspective. What have you gained, I suppose, you've worked with schools as well, but gained in your role on this committee, seeing and hearing the perspective of people who are working in schools where you are working in a clinical setting, they are working in schools, and and how does what you bring kind of work with those two perspectives? Yeah, great question. I think it's a very enjoyable part of the process. I think that our group all, as you highlighted, bring a specific niche to the table for these discussions, and on a day-to-day life, I'll work in a uh, busy sports medicine center associated with a hospital, but as we know, that's not where a lot of the athletes in Missouri are, are hanging out. And so it was really great to be able to hear their perspective of whether it's a large school athletic trainer or school nurse in the city or whether it's in a small rural community in Missouri. Those are two drastically different environments of what we need to try to help the young athletes that are participating there, the resources that are available. And so I think just that discussion really opens my eyes as we try to offer some guidance as to how to keep athletes participating safely in the state of Missouri. And I'm a little fortunate that I uh, for me personally, I grew up, my, my mother was a high school math teacher and my dad was a coach and a principal. And so I, I really enjoy and, and call back those kind of memories of the challenges that go into sports participation, both the highs and the lows and the challenges of administration. And so I find that the dialogue has probably been one of the highlights of my career. I really enjoy serving this committee and enjoy the conversations that take place. And I really, um, I feel proud of the work we've been doing. I think it's beneficial for young athletes participating in Missouri. Dr. Halstead, as Greg kind of talked about maybe his background a little bit and family and, and education, what's your particular interest in serving on this committee? You're, you're a physician. <laughs> you're giving up at least two days a year to come to this meeting and really quite a bit more time on the outside. There's a lot of side work that happens with this committee. What's your interest? You know, part of that is is just overall advocacy and just looking out for the individual athletes that are out there. I mean, that's part of sports medicine. It's not just, you know, going to a field and taking care of athletes and hoping nobody gets hurt and then taking care of them if they do get hurt. It's it's part of what can we do to set up things in place that may prevent an injury. And that that's a big part of what we do. I mean, as a pediatrician, trained in pediatrician, a lot of what we were taught during our training is prevention and things that we don't get into situations where we have to address things that become out of control, as an example. So, you know, for me, it's always been I, I want to make sure that we are able to make a difference, that that we do have a voice in, in what happens. And we can do things just to overall just make sports safer, make sure we're doing the right things, bringing best practices of what's happening in sports medicine throughout the state of Missouri I think that's one of the things I love about our committee is we have a really diverse group of people. I think we all bring our own different experiences, me as suburban St. Louis, as someone there. But having this you know, experience of being a former athlete, knowing that you know, I see patients from all over the area's rural parts of Missouri and big city Missouri, 
and just you know having other people to bounce ideas off us because we have that unique perspective we can get someone else's perspective we know hey that's not going to fly if we try and do this sort of intervention somewhere else so i think it's really just it's a great opportunity for us just collectively to really just again push out what we can as far as just improving the health of our athletes Stephanie, you are an athletic trainer. You have served in a full-time capacity in a high school in an area of our state, Columbia, where we are a little bit resource-rich, much like St. Louis and Kansas City, Doctors Canty and Halstead. And you serve on this committee from that perspective, also being from a small town. As I think about, again, in my former life, understanding athletic trainers and their required education. You have annual education that you must have in order to keep up your licensure. And so from that perspective, sitting on this committee with other athletic trainers, with school people, with physicians, that annual education to just, you know, the job of being an athletic trainer in the context of high school sports, through the eyes of MISHA, where we are not just about Uh, How are we going to treat the athlete, but how are we going to encourage the environment that prevents injuries, that properly responds in areas where we are not necessarily resource rich? As you think about that with athletic trainers and, you know, high school athletics and the SMAC committee, which is asking a lot, how does that work, you know, among athletic trainers as far as their best practices and those kinds of things? Oh my, I don't know where to start with that one. <laughs> I, I think this this committee, I think we've all kind of talked about, the Sports Med Advisory Committee really takes into effect, okay, here's best practices in the best world. But you have to think about the world where there there is no, there's no physician in town. There's no certified athletic trainer within a driving, you know, 30-mile radius. You know, we, we have a lot of athletic trainers that come through our schools and and our college students getting ready to be certified athletic trainers of kind of opening their eyes to the fact that so our certified athletic trainers come from a D1 school and, and they think they're going to go be a high school athletic trainer. You're not going to have all the bells and whistles in that athletic training room that you had at your D1 school or even professional athletic trainers say we have a whole lot at our disposal to take care of our athletes that these high school athletic trainers don't have. And, and even at the different levels of high schools, from class one to six, you have, you have varying things at, at your disposal that you can use. So this committee helps kind of mitigate that. And, and I think that's been kind of a challenge in some instances. We're talking about heat illness and, and what can you do to prevent it, to take care of it at its different levels, you know, if you have someone that's in heat stroke. So this committee has always done a really good job of taking that into account. And it's, sometimes it's a challenge of what is best practices when they don't have a medical professional on the sideline. So what can our coaches do and what kind of training can we give to our coaches or our athletic directors that are in these schools and they're the only adult there? So so I think that's been kind of a challenge sometimes and, and a good challenge for us to, okay, how can we equip them so that they can take care of those athletes? Great points. You mentioned something. I want to hit on just a few hot topics here in the in the time we have left. That was a pun because we are re- we are recording this in a, a particularly hot week in the state of Missouri. We have begun our fall sports practices. Our first allowable contest is actually tomorrow night. As of this recording, you're going to hear this recording after that has happened. 
we have football games starting in Missouri tomorrow night. Across the state, what is a pretty typical start time for football in Missouri is 7 p.m. We have many, many schools who are changing that time. So let's talk a little bit about heat and our approach to heat. And Greg, I might, I'm going to pitch it back to you to maybe talk about wet bulb globe temperature and the MISHA recommendations for how do we, you know, once upon a time, how do you determine when, when it's too hot to do fill in the blank. But then I want any anyone else to, to jump in after Greg talks about this. From your perspective, where are we on heat? In this particular time of the year, late August, schools are getting started, and there's a lot of management going on in our schools. So from the standpoint of a best practice recommendation from Sports Medicine Advisory Committee, that occurred actually six years ago. We're, we're in our sixth school year of Wet Bulb Globe being the recommended practice that our schools have in place for measuring environmental conditions that may be present, namely heat and humidity, that could be a negative impact, uh, so to speak, on a student athlete. Prior to wet bulb globe coming into place, our, our guidance we gave our schools was we're using heat index. We're using heat index. Well, at that time, typically any of the heat index reporting that our schools received would come from like the the National Weather Service that may be several counties away several miles away from where that school's located and where that practice is actually occurring or where that game is actually occurring it was a really good move towards you know our recommendation of using wet bulb globe because wet bulb globe temperature is determined at that very site of that practice at that very site of that competition and it takes into account several different factors you know ambient temperature level of humidity air movement on that particular day are you in direct sunlight are you in indirect sunlight is there cloud cover so there's so many different helpful criteria so to speak that's being accounted for that results in that overall composite reading that our schools are given to then go to the guidelines that we have, the document of guidelines that we have in place for them to use on what was my reading number and what does this guideline now tell me I need to do with my practices or contests based on what that number is. You know, when we're talking about heat and the unique challenges, I mean, there's there's a various spectrum here. I mean, obviously, we think about simple things like a sunburn from heat, or we talk about getting heat cramps, or we talk about heat exhaustion. But ultimately, what we're worried about the most from a sports medicine standpoint is exertional heat stroke. And that's the thing that actually can kill somebody. That's where your temperature in your body, your core temperature is up in 106, 107, 108, which if your body stays at that temperature for a long enough time, then you start to damage organs in your body and you can die. And so that, that's the thing we're trying to prevent here. So the purpose of things like the wet bulb globe temperature is to try and help give us some guidance as far as when is it an unsafe time to participate and how do we adjust for that to help avoid getting our bodies, our athletes' bodies into those levels. But then we also have to have things in place to address, well, if someone does happen to go into exertional heat stroke, how can we adequately treat that person as quickly as possible to save that person and not have them go into organ damage or, or death. And so that's where having, you know, adjusting your practice times or shortening your practice times, extra water breaks come in, having a cold tub available so you can rapidly cool that person, which is the most critical portion. The quicker you get that person cooled in that situation, the better outcome that that person is going to have. So, you know, ideally, 
hopefully every single football sideline tomorrow has a cold tub out there ready to go that they can put an athlete into as rapidly as possible so they can get that person's temperature down as quickly as they can so it's it's making sure we're addressing how do we prevent that from happening like we talked about before and then what do we do to address that when it does potentially happen okay when we talk about heat you talked about several of the possibilities and then you went you know, went to heat stroke, which is a threat to life. And there's another threat to life. There are multiple threats to life, but one that I think has has hit the national kind of the national consciousness after Demar Hamlin in the NFL game in January, and that is a cardiac event. And not being a medical person, I'm probably not saying it correct, but it was a cardiac event that Demar Hamlin had, and through kind of proper and rapid response, he survived that event. And in our state, and in every state we have athletes at the high school level and the middle school level competing on a daily basis practicing on a daily basis and in those situations when the body is elevated either with you know pulse or all many of different things there's a possibility for a cardiac event and we've talked quite a bit through the smack and when i say we i'm talking about the misha smack group i'm rather new to it but talk to us well anyone from this group about how we're teaching schools, how we're expecting schools to respond in these events, and they happen. And we know of at least three people, two athletes and a coach, just in the last school year, uh, who were saved with very specific actions. So anyone speak to these cardiac events? I think we can speak about cardiac events and then just how to prepare your school or your team for emergencies in general. I think the bigger umbrella we talk about is trying to make sure that each school and each specific sports venue has an emergency action plan to think about if an emergency happens here at this venue or this team with these people present how are we going to respond and not only do we help people you know uh, dr Hostet mentioned a lot about prevention that's a lot about what we talk about in this committee is how can we prevent uh, tragedies or um, how can we prevent instances like this and so i think having that eap in place is probably step number one and that EAP, or Emergency Action Plan, we kind of abbreviate it sometimes, and so bear with me about that. But that EAP should include always top things that pop up is cardiac events. How are you going to respond to a cardiac event? Do you know where the AED is? Not just do you know where it is. Is it accessible? How close is it to your venue? We know that we talk a lot about, you know, time is life and time is organ, as Dr. Hollis had talked about in heat. The same thing happens in cardiac events. We know that if you have the AED on there in less than three minutes, your, your chances for a positive outcome are far, far better than if, if we haven't practiced that emergency action plan or that AED is maybe you've got one, but it's, you know, 10 minutes away or it's locked up in the nurse's office somewhere and she's gone home for the day. And so just trying to help schools be proactive about thinking about, what is our EAP? Have we practiced it? And have we looked at it closely to see if it can best protect the athletes and school personnel? And we talk about athletes, but as you said, coaches, officials, even fans, anyone present, is, I think you do a good job of talking about that um, high school sports is a gathering place for the community and what things can we do to keep it a safe environment. I will also touch on we as a certified athletic trainer we do practice with our coaches and right now we're in football season so we've been doing c-spine practice so if an injured athlete with a cervical spine injury how do you turn them how do we get this equipment off and we'd go through a practice i think our coaches are much more comfortable 
after having done that because they realize okay i can do this and here's here's how i start cpr so we kind of put it in their head pretty early that you're doing this so you can get to their airway if you have to do cpr who's getting the aed so we do a practice that's on the field with an athlete worst case scenario turn them over who's going to get the aed and i recently did one with a school that we're new to covering and uh when i asked the coach i said so where's the aed and they're like well i i think it's by the nurses i said in the ad's office so they had a whole conversation there and they all thought it was somewhere different so it was a really good practice for them to realize holy smokes we kind of need to know where this is it's one thing to have those aeds or you you have your cold tank and you have but the semantics of how's it going to happen if if things go bad so that practice is really important and i think it really enables them and kind of gives them a little bit more confidence to to act when and if something happens i think the other thing you mentioned a little bit that of the things we've talked about those are not uh, it's not just it's just not physicians or an athletic trainer that can use these tools and that's what we talk about when we talk about looking at the state as a whole is what things can we roll out for planning purposes that don't require you know we would we would strongly prefer for an athletic trainer to be at every event and every practice. But if that's not feasible, then how can we do other things working with school personnel that's available to put in place these best practices? And the things we talked about, emergency action plans, don't require a physician or an athletic trainer. Though it'd be great to get their input when designing those. Same thing goes for AEDs. Same thing goes for checking the wet bulb on globe temperature. Same thing goes for instituting cold pools. And so just trying to give the whole state tools that they can use based on the resources that they have available, I think is key. And historically, the Sports Medicine Advisory Committee has come through with a number of recommendations that have really, I think, revolutionized the way that high school sports are approached in our schools, among our officials community, our coaches. But as both Stephanie and Dr. Canty mentioned, there's a bit of needle threading (laughs) that has to happen because what is best practice versus what is feasible for any one of our almost 900 member schools from grades 6 through 12 that is always in mind. And so we've talked about how we have members of the committee that are representing different areas of the state, different communities, different resources. And so when Dr. Canty, as you talk about that emergency action plan, recently in in our March meeting in SMAC, the recommendation went to our board of directors and it was approved. And here's one of those things where we have a lot of recommendations and guidelines. As, As Greg talked about, we've got wet bulb globe temperature guidelines. We do not mandate that schools use that. We've done a a ton of education. The NFHS Foundation has provided wet bulb globe thermometers that measure that reading to any school who doesn't have them. So we've done a lot of work to get that and we've made a lot of progress in that, but we still have not required it. But what we have done in March is said that every school who's going to host a post-season event. So these are district tournaments, or sectional games, or quarterfinal games, and ultimately the final site, which is under the auspices of our office, must have an emergency action plan, a medical emergency action plan on file with our office, and it needs to be discussed. We call it the medical timeout, and Dr. Halstead, maybe you can talk a little bit about the importance of just getting people together at the beginning of an event and talking about what do we do if there's a medical emergency? Right. I mean, it, it goes back to the basic principles we've touched on before. You need to have a plan. So that's where our emergency action plan comes in. 
we need to prepare. So we have to have the right equipment, those types of things in order to address things. Then we need to practice things. And that practice may involve things like we've talked about practicing how to stabilize an athlete that we're suspecting has a neck injury. But we also have to communicate like before these events happen, who's responsible for what, where are these things? So we all know we're not literally caught with our pants down, so to speak. And everybody's just staring around looking at each other and here's an athlete who needs emergency medical attention. So having this pre-event medical minute, as we're calling it, the PEMS, I think these are really crucial for just to get everybody on the same page. It's also, I think, just crucial to know and have people have connect faces, like who is who. You know, the official can know who that this person's actually the team physician or the athletic trainer who's here on site or who's the EMS that may be on site for the event. So everybody just knows these are these individuals and we've seen them, we've identified them ahead of time. And we know that they're going to potentially take on particular roles when an event happens. And so that's where these these meetings are really important. And you can have a classic suburban St. Louis, like what you're dealing with, football event where you have at least two athletic trainers, at least two team docs. You've got EMS on side. You have all this stuff happening to an eight-man event in northwest Missouri where you may not have any medical personnel in the field still. The coaches and the school administrators can be the people that implement that plan. Again, the importance of the AED and the importance of just knowing who's going to make the 911 call. How do we get a vehicle on this field to get an affected player or coach to medical emergency? So, again, we're threading the needle. We know best practice, but the resources and the environment are quite different. And Greg, maybe you can talk a little bit more about the empowerment, <laughs> even though we treat it as requirements. We ask for certain training of our coaches, but what is that training essentially empowers them to, no matter what other resources you have, you've got tools at your disposal for the safety of athletes and coaches. So this goes hand in hand with what all of our medical professionals have said on the podcast today about our recognition of resources not being the same from school A to school B to school C, etc. We have full recognition of that, and because we recognize that, we have taken additional steps of trying to establish what are the bare minimum training necessities for a school to be able to be proactive during a medical emergency, especially in those cases where, as you just mentioned, there are no medical personnel anywhere on site for that contest. So that's when we actually made the decision to move forward a number of years ago of adding coach and director requirements. So the coaches and directors at our schools, through our bylaws, there are now some requirements in place that they have to meet to be a school-approved coach, so to speak. One of those is it is required for every coach to have CPR AED training, first aid training, complete a heat illness prevention course and mental health course, as well as a concussion education course. So those are steps that we've taken as a state association through guidance from our sports medicine advisory on how do we address that contest or that game at that site that has no medical personnel and we have to count on our coaches and school administrators to be the reactors, so to speak. And I think we've done a good job of that. Today in 2023, I definitely think overall 
our coaches and our administrators are taking that much more seriously than when this conversation first started. And the reason they are is because of the DeMar Hamlin occurrences, because of the knowledge that we have and our schools have of students and coaches and sometimes officials and even fans and spectators having that medical emergency when we're at the site of that contest and how do we react to that. So I'm really proud of the decisions the committee and our board of directors has made in our coaches education requirements that they have to complete to to help fill those gaps in the absence of medical personnel. And I think we talked about a couple of things about um, resources and it's a, it's a common thing that we all try to take into account. But I, um, I guess I always want to take the time to say that we've tried to encourage everyone to raise the bar, too, and raise the bar on expectations and particularly think about the many of the things we've spent a lot of this podcast talking about require no cost. There's no cost to an emergency actions and plan. There's no cost to practicing that emergency action plan. And there's really no cost to having the medical time out beforehand. I think if we could have that taking place at athletic events throughout Missouri, we would see a lot safer environment. Not just a safer environment, but I think the um, administrators and everyone else would feel a little more confident. They, I think everyone would have a little less anxiety if we practice these things that really require just um, some education and really no money um, and just merely awareness. So, We've touched on a number of things today, just kind of the smack in general, who are the members of it and what it does. Touched on heat. We touched on medical emergency action planning, the pre-event minute, the PIMS, as we say it, and wet bulb globe and cardiac cardiac response. So as I said, we're going to probably talk with members of this group as often as we can. This group does meet twice a year unless we need need it more often. And I just want to thank our representatives from the SMAC for joining us today and to Greg Stahl for his work with this committee over his time in the office. And we thank you for listening to the MISHA All Access Podcast. This is Dr. Jennifer Ruckstad, the Executive Director of the Missouri State High School Activities Association. Thank you for listening to the Misha All Access Podcast and having an interest in Missouri high school activities and athletics. If you enjoyed today's episode of the Misha All Access Podcast or any of the episodes in this podcast, please consider subscribing or liking with your favorite podcast provider. It helps other people find us and we really appreciate you listening and supporting the Missouri State High School Activities Association.